Welcome to the OC24 podcast, where we've taken some of the best talks and discussions from this year's 24-hour conference on global organised crime, which showcases some of the most interesting research into organised crime around the world. This episode is called Organised Oil Crime in Nigeria, The Delta Paradox, Organised Criminals or Community Saviours. Thank you so much for joining this conversation on organized oil crimes in Nigeria, the Delta Paradox, organized criminals and community or community saviors. Thank you so much for those who have joined us quite on time. My name is Omolara Balogun, and it's my pleasure to moderate this session today. And uh, I work with the West Africa Civil Society Institute, WAXI, as the heads of policy influencing and advocacy. Here at WACSI, I offer strategic direction to the Institute's ambition to influence regional policies that affect civil society development effectiveness. And I also lead the regional advocacy agenda that are of interest you know, to WACSI. And uh, from time to time, we create tactical spaces for civil society to set agenda for issues of this nature. And of course, to add their voices to imagine issues around closing civic space, democracy and governance, human rights, sust and sustainable uh, development. On this panel today with me, I have two renowned authors and experts in the field of transnational organized crimes. Uh, I'm going to start with Robin Cartwright. Robin is a senior fellow at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime and was the executive director of UK, UK Government Investment Advising on Governance. Uh, he was a partner for 14 years in the global strategy team of business advisor at KPMG LNP, where he developed uh, a capability to measure and counter illicit trade recognized by World Customs Organization and the European Commission. Robin began his career in security and intelligence for the UK Ministry of Defense. And he is well-researched and written uh, a lot of papers on private sector's response to organized crimes and counterfeit pharmaceuticals in Africa. Uh, Robin is a member of the Technical Reference Group for Global Initiative uh, transnational organized crime, uh, crime index for Africa in 2019. Robin, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. I also have uh, with me on the panel today, uh, Dr. Wale Olu Wale Ojewali, who is the regional uh, manager for ENAT. ENAT is the regional organized crime observatory. He is the organized, regional organized crime Ob observatory coordinator I beg your pardon, at the Institute for Security Studies based in Dakar, Senegal. Dr. Wally leads on improving the evidence-based knowledge and analysis on transnational organized crime and its impact on governance, development, and state fragility in Central Africa. His research and policy interests span transnational organized crimes, urban governance, security, and conflicts, and resilience in Africa. His ongoing studies focus on how urbanization shapes transnational organized crime in Mali and Nigeria. He also works a lot around arms trafficking in Cameroon and illicit trading of cotton in the Democratic Republic of Congo. His recent publication, 
focused on oil smuggling and gas flaring in the Nigeria de Niger Delta. He is a co-author of Urbanization and Crimes in Nigeria, which was published by Pagri in 2019. Dr. Wali, thank you so much for joining this conversation. Thank you so uh, much, Malara. We still have colleagues joining us. Please, uh, as you join this conversation, kindly mute your mics uh, so we avoid any kind of interference that may disturb the conversation. Uh, so colleagues today, I am extremely delighted to moderate this important section on organized oil crimes in Nigeria's oil rich Niger Delta. This webinar is organized by INACT in conjunction with OC224. And just a little bit about ENACT. ENACT builds knowledge and skills to enhance Africa's response to transnational organized crime through the funding support of the European Union. ENACT is implemented by Institute for Security Studies and Interpol in affiliation with the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. Now, um, some of the studies that we have seen, recent studies specifically by ENACT shows that Niger Delta oil crimes is one of the most serious natural resource crimes globally with the systematic theft sell and illegal refining of up to 20% of Nigeria's oil output. In this particular region, illegal bunkery and artisanal refining have increased exponentially over the last 20 years. And these has caused grievous degradation to the environment, one that is still being poorly understood by many stakeholders. Uh, studies also shows that the oil spills in the Niger Delta are 20 times, 20 times those in United States onshore grid production. So the impact of this spillage on health and livelihood of people living in the region is quite severe, especially those who are very poor or politically marginalized communities. I think for the initial comments from our speakers, I would like to go to Robin first. Robin, I went over your report and something struck me there. I thought this is the first thing I'm going to ask you. You had said in your report that the cleaning up of the Niger Delta would need millions of dollars and about 20 to 30 years to clean up. It's obvious that the Nigerian government will not be able to do this alone, at least not by themselves. So for us to have a better understanding, I would like you to further share with us your contextual analysis of the environmental crimes that we have in the Niger Delta today. Why do we need this much and this long time? What is the current situation? Robin, you have the floor. Well, thank you for that, Lara. Yeah, it is a, it's kind of a scary number. Actually, the number I nearly quoted in the video is actually $50 billion, which is eye-watering. And the, the um, amount of money that's been uh, allocated just for Ogoniland, which remember is only one small region, uh, is is only, uh, uh, I think, $10 million. So there's a hell of a long way to go to clean up the whole of the Niger Delta. Um, why, why do we say it needs so much effort? Because it's one of the world's largest wetlands. It is a very natural, natural but fragile ecosystem. 
Uh, and this is onshore oil. This is the problem where onshore oil leaks. It leaks in front of your entire agricultural and wetland ecosystem um, and has really uh, created uh, significant harm. And Mike Cowing, you could hear there, and Professor Zabi talked at length about how much impact the oil crime has on just a number of mangroves that can that can uh, that can be supported, and therefore the number of fish that can live in the water. So it's a it's a long it's a long system, but it can be done incrementally. And in fact, in Agoni land, some aspects have been already addressed. Some projects have been started. They've been a bit stop start. I hear let's see. There's another question about that stop start, particularly under COVID. But some projects have started, so we won't expect all those. The, the benefits of all of those cleanup operations can, can start happening immediately, even if the entire thing will take a long time. So I hope that that gives us some sort of confidence. And Lara, I just also wants to mention that on, on top of you know, that, that point about the cleanup, we have seen some really positive aspects since we wrote the report in 2020. Um, the Petroleum Industry Act has been enacted, it's been signed by uh, President Bahari uh, earlier this year. It has some really interesting angles in it. It has uh, the, the idea of, of setting up a host community development fund, a trust fund, uh, where it takes the profits of the oil companies that own the block in that community and uses 3% of their operating expenditure to be applied to projects around sustainability and employment in the local areas. So very much what we're talking about, about this sort of balanced response. But there's a long way to go to see that money actually coming through. And there are an awful lot of people who think it's not enough money at all. So just wanted to mention that as we go on. Thank you so much, Robin. Thanks a lot. Dr. Wally, I'm coming to you. There's a question here which is pretty much linked to the question I had noted down. It's from Stefano and he says, uh, a question for speaker, is there a relationship between criminal gangs and politicians concerning the illegal traffic of oil? Now, I would like to link it to my question. It's very related. I'm curious, I really want you to share with us. Um, this criminal activities has been on for over two decades. 20 good years. And I, I, I want to believe some sort of relationship must exist between the different actors found in this space. So you have been to the field, you've engaged different actors, you've done a lot of research in the area. In your research and engagement, can you share with us the interconnections between the criminals, you know, and, 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 and the state security personnel? I also understand this is an area that is Heavily, heavily protected. At least the state, you know, normally deploys security personnel to protect the pipelines and all of that. And the communities. What kind of relationship did you witness in the course of your engagement between or among these three three actors? You know, the, the artisans and 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 the security personnel and the communities. Can you share with us, Dr. Wally? Thank you so much, um, Omalara, for this uh, moderation. And then a bit of a historical analysis um, from 1996, after the killing of uh, Ken Sarawiwa, and then when we get to the heightened level of militancy in the Niger Delta, one of the key things that is important to underscore here is the fact that 
The initial response from the state was a securitized, a militarized approach in combating oil theft and associated militant activities in the Niger Delta. And then what the government actually did was to mobilize the security forces. In this sense, talking about the police, the military personnel to the Niger Delta to in combating militancy and oil theft in the region. But strikingly, I'm taking it from the question that you asked in terms of the connivance and the complicity of the state actors. What we'll find out and in the course of our interaction with the people of the field and available evidence in the public domain is the fact that the security forces that were taxed with um, tackling oil smuggling are also benefiting from the illicit business they are mandated to call, like I told you in terms of historical sense that the, um, the response from the state is to mobilize the security forces. And that indeed the state security forces in both Nigeria and neighboring countries, because it's also important for me to underscore the fact that uh, the oil theft of the Niger Delta caught across international frontiers. It is being smuggled to Benin Republic, to Cameroon, to Niger Republic. And then what we find out, particularly in the case of Nigeria and Cameroon is the fact that um, there is embeddedness of the um, state actors in the entire criminal economy. And in Nigeria, for instance, the joint tax force, which consists of the, the, the military, the police, the, secu the, the security, uh, state security, um, Nigeria Securities and Civil Defense Corps, um, and police personnel who were taxed with tackling militancy and related organized crimes. So in the case of the Niger Delta and then the military forces, I mean, the security forces, the JTF members, they became complicit and they were even reported to be benefiting from the illicit business they are mandated to prevent in the first place. So how do they do this? They sheet pipeline vendors and artisanal oil refineries in exchange for financial bribes. And there are even locations and reported um, 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 reports available in the public domain that shows that they were also creating their own artisanal refining and even locations whereby they seized this product from the, from the oil theft um, actors. What they do is to go to resell it, I mean, in the criminal market. So the oil crime in the Niger Delta, um, um, particularly with respect to the neighboring country. What we also find in Cameroon, for instance, is that soldiers, police officers are also part of the syndicate that trade smuggled oil from Nigeria, even when it crossed to the other side of the country, in, I mean, in Cameroon. And how do they do this? They ferry this along the waterways into, I mean, it starts from the Delta to River State, then to Aquaibom, and then to Cross River, and then they connect to the uh, southern part of Cameroon in trading some of these illicit oil. So what they do, I mean, the, the, the point with the state security forces is that they provide protection to the bandas and then they also benefit from the criminal economy. Then in terms of the community, like you listen in the video, what, what happened is that uh, some of the communities members, what they, I mean, they are found a, a business in this criminal economy and they are the ones that are actually engaging in needs for different reasons that have been advanced. Some said because of uh, unemployment, some actually got involved as a result of the press and the need to, I mean, to look for environmental justice on the part of government. And then that is how the community people have gotten involved and the environmental devastation, if you go to the Niger Delta, 
is, 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 is humongous. Um, I mean, the proportion can only be imagined. I've seen it myself, uh, um, uh, and I know that uh, uh, um, just a fraction of it makes it into the, into the media. And then the last one, which has to do with politicians, there is a strong network between the politicians and the uh, oil smugglers, pipeline vendors, and the Niger Delta, who are popularly referred to as militants generally. Now, what happened is that uh, to be able to undertake these criminal activities, you need some form of arms to be able to protect yourself and then go against even security forces within the, within the state who might want to prevent them from carrying out the activities. So this is also linked to the, electoral, the election cycle in Nigeria. So for the politicians, for them to be able to win the election, they need some of these criminal elements from the creek. And what they do is that they empower them with arms. And then what happens after that is that um, they are the ones that when the election comes, that they used to win the election. And, you know, there is a lot of names that we can drop here in terms of how some militants have become oligarch and they are even fraternizing with the state in the NIDA data. So there is a, for the, for the crime to be able to fester, for the crime to be able to be sustained for a long time, you have a three-level network in terms of connivance from the part of the community people from where the militant people draw a pool of people to join them in the criminal activities. And then you need the protection from state security forces who also benefit from the oil crime. And then you need the politicians that sit on the apex of decision-making to look the other side and also make use of this criminal element to win their own election. So it's a network of operation in terms of what transpire as far as this criminal economy is concerned in the Niger Delta. And that is the reason why if you're also going to provide a, I mean, a solution to the problem, like Robin has said earlier, it has to also be a multi-stakeholder, a comprehensive approach because the criminal elements are found in pocket of places around the corridor of power in the business, I mean, in the, in the business itself and then within the state security forces. Thank you so much, Dr. Wally. This, this is quite a, a, a detailed feedback on, on that question. And please, colleagues who are, are in the audience, this is an interactive section. And then we would like you to join. I mean, if you'd like to take the floor, please raise your hands. Otherwise, you can kindly drop your comments into the chat box and I'm going to read them out. I have uh, a comment here from Kele Chuko. Uh, um, he says that uh, Nigerian team are the global initiative against transnational organized crime. Okay, I think he said, do you think there is a way the illicit oil refining economy has helped to reduce violence from emerging? Is, is, is there a connection between these two? Do you think the, the ongoing and booming, you know, uh, illicit refining of oil in the region, has it reduced, has it reduced or contributed to reducing, you know, uh, uh, violence in any way? This is this question. Robin, and Robin, um, please. It's a really interesting question, this one, because it's whether or not this illicit economy has actually pacified uh, the community, in effect, because it was only, you know, 12 years ago where we had um, open armed conflict in the Delta, uh, we had an amnesty in 2009, uh, and we had the roughly around that time the end of militant active, armed militia and militant activities. And the argument is that actually those militant uh, activists became illegal oil refiners, and there's some good evidence about that. So um, 
Mr. Iruma's question is a, is a brilliant one. That said, it doesn't mean there is, you know, necessarily a lot less harm being done to people uh, because you have an enormous amount of fires, you have an enormous amount of pollution, and you have the return of violence, actually. Just two weeks ago, three people were killed from any, the uh, big Italian uh, conglomerate. They were actually part of a mangrove reforestation project and were killed by activists. So it's not as if the crime has gone away. Um, uh, so I wouldn't say we we have traded uh, open warfare for peace because we haven't, sadly. But the point is well made. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Wally, would you have something to add for a minute? Yes, 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 yes. Uh, I think uh, if, there are, if at all if there is any any gain, I think it's only going to be a pseudo gain because what is going on in the Niger Delta needs to be seen in the broader context of eco-violence. So it is not only against the people, it is also a crime against the environment, environment. which in turn comes to hurt the people and hurt the wider biodiversity in the environment. And like Robin said, I mean, earlier when we were having the conversation, and I think Professor Sabi also alluded to that, to the extent to which we want to cut carbon emission by 2030. So if the people decide to go in the way of um, illegal refining, the combustion process is also adding serious um, environmental hazard into the environment, which actually affects the health of the people. So I don't think there's any modest gain in any way that probably we can allude to the fact that the people were getting involved in the illicit economy. And then thereby that is creating probably some form of uh, sustainable livelihood support. It is a very minute clique of people who are benefiting from the process. It's important for us to stress that. The community people at large are benefiting nothing from the process. And there's also a fallout of this criminal economy that a lot of the militants who are engaging in oil theft, pipeline vandalization and all those things have also met morphed to become part of the criminal gangs that are now, I mean, roaming the, with the Gulf of Guinea as pirates on the sea now. So that is one element. And the other element which, as we are responding to the conversation, I don't want us to lose sight of it, is not to be fixated on this uh, community level crime. We need to also look at it through the lens of wholesale crime that is being committed by the oil company. So it's it, it, it a whole lot of network. And I believe a greater percentage of the environmental devastation that is going on in the Niger Delta, the eco-violence, the crime that is taking place in the Niger Delta now. And the, the multinational oil company needs to be held responsible. But it's a web of analysis. The government is also culpable in the process because we have seen instances whereby the oil companies even wanted to probably um, adjust to the redress probably from court or maybe as a result of pressure from the environment, I mean, from the people. Most times the government do not provide the necessary support in terms of oversight. I will hang on this, which is just the last point to portray the point that I just raised now. You talk about the gas flaring in the Niger Delta, which is also a form of environmental crime and eco-violence against the environment in the Niger Delta. So there are instances that uh, the government, I mean, the oil companies have shown interest to say they are going to procure the modern technology to ensure the proper evacuation of gas from the, um, from the oil, oil, I mean, the crude oil refining in the Niger Delta. 
But because of the joint venture partnership that exists between the government and some of these multinational oil companies, they also put on the table that if we are contributing this certain percentage of money to procure the technology, the government should also come to contribute. But in such occasions, the government has backed down. So you, you find out that uh, it's a whole lot of criminal economy that is going on. And I think the major challenge is that uh, there is no sincerity on the part of government to actually support environmental justice process on the people for the people of the Niger Delta. And that is where that is the centrality of the plight that is confronting the people now, because they need to get the government on their side to be able to mandate these oil companies to do the needful. And at the same time, to provide the necessary response that is going to bring them to a considerable level, the level of oil theft and oil smuggling that is going on in the Niger Delta. Amnesty was provided, like Robbie said, but the amnesty has not really tackled the problem. He just told us three persons were killed a few days ago. I doubt if there is any month that people were not killed in the Niger Delta, maybe as a result of the environmental devastation or direct violence that is met on the people and everything is tied to this oil theft, farming, the, the, the contestation for resources on the part of the state um, actors, non-state actors and security forces. Thank you so much, Dr. Wale. That is quite insightful. And I, I wanted to ask you a question, but I think I'm going to go to Robin now. Robin, in your report again, <laughs> you recommended that one way, uh, one way to curb this illegal refining of oil bunkering, spillage, vandalization of pipelines, and of course, ultimately to stop the destruction that is being done to the ecosystem is this idea of cellular refinery. And I would really love to hear from you how you think the idea of cellular refineries can practically, practically, you know, uh, stop this illegal activities and who in your own research and, and, and perspective, who are those that you think are best fit to manage these refineries? Will it be the current criminals that we're talking about or state is going to move structures down to these communities and start this, you know, uh, 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 um, what, what you call um, uh, cellular refineries or modular mm. refineries? I would like you to share more about that. In practical terms, how would this work? And what would be the role of Nigerian state? Okay, so um, so the sort of long story short on this is that the Nigeria has a bizarre issue in that it is the largest oil producer in Africa, but it refines almost none of its own fuel. So it has to, it's in the ludicrous position uh, of having to import refined fuel from, I'm sorry to say, British Petroleum. And uh, I think that's an appalling situation when they have uh, such great capabilities in Nigeria. And in fact, they're trying to address this quite quickly by building a very big refinery called Dangote, um, which keeps getting delayed. And there's been some real problems in terms of the output of the, I think, four refineries that exist in different parts of Nigeria. Um, so this idea sort of came out partly from this big refining shortfall. That means, by the way, it's very difficult to get refined fuel. So some of the desire for people to go into illegal refining is that people can't buy diesel for their own vehicles in the Niger Delta, despite the fact they are almost literally swimming in oil. 
Um, the most bit, so that's the most bizarre thing. So the, the point about cellular refineries sort of came from the idea of modular refineries, which are slightly bigger, uh, and as Ledham says, are expensive, they're 100 million. The idea is, is some people have talked about legitimizing artisanal refining in the same way that artisanal mining has been legitimized in so many countries, in Mozambique, or all, all over the world. Um, it's very difficult to legitimize an artisanal process like this because the oil is stolen and the refining process is, is extremely unsafe. So one of our suggestions, along with our colleagues at the Stakeholder Democracy Network, was to create cellular refineries, which are cheaper than modular, sort of $20, $30 million. And the idea would be that you create public-private partnerships around them, so you get external investment, um, along with the uh, promotion and encouragement of the government. And this is possibly something that could be picked up by the host community development trust that is now part of the Petroleum Industry Act. Um, okay. But I've got to say the modular refinery program has not been a success. And so we are still a long way off this one. This has not, this has not caught fire, this idea, just yet. Thank you so much, uh, Robin. Uh, Dr. Walik, in your last comments, you mentioned a lot about the role that state actors are playing in, 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 in this crimes. And I, I think it's important for us, if you, you also mentioned the fact that unless the state actors are on the side of the people, it will be difficult to get a lasting solution. Is that you're pushing the people to, to, to the criminals or you want them to stay with you. We have about 10 more minutes to end this section. So I would like you to speak on how we can minimize or completely eliminate the role of state actors in these old criminal activities. And in addition to that, I will want you to also, as we, run, we, we, we try to run out, I will also like you to state, I mean, what, in, in looking at watching the movie, one point that came out very clearly is that monetary gain has been a bedrock or driving force of this criminality. So how do we ensure that the people who are making these gains have alternative means of making gains or you know financial financial gains or whatever we call it how what what can we what what kind of incentives can we provide to these people and how can we eliminate the role of state actors if you can give that if you can give that to us in two minutes that would really be helpful Thank you so much. The, the role of the state actors is very, very um, critical because um, the government sits on top in terms of uh, providing oversight. And don't forget that in Nigeria, um, the resources, um, everything that has to do with natural resources is largely domiciled in the, on the exclusive list of the federal government. So in this sense, the federal government actors, whether NMPC, security forces, have significant roles to play um, um, because they are, I mean, some elements within the quarters are also part of the criminal economy. But I think what is very, very important and what we have not seen since, since 1996, when Ken Saruwa was killed fighting on this issue, is the fact that the government made incremental effort in 2019 to address Oboni cleaning up. When I was in Cross Street, I mean, when I was in River State and Bayesa in May and April, um, I mean, in August this year for this research, what I found out is the fact that uh, 
there is no significant work going on as far as the cleaning up is concerned now. And that is the principal concern for the people. So if we truly want to address the entire environmental crime, let government demonstrate seriousness by providing the necessary support for Ogoni cleaning up. And don't forget that Ogoni cleaning up is just the pilot phase. The entire Niger Delta is supposed to be cleaned up. So that is the number one thing. And then in terms of addressing the criminal element within the entire value chain, the, it also speaks to the issue of impunity in Nigeria. Have people been arrested? Have people been tried? That has to be done publicly. I mean, okay. we only read about these things in the media. But available evidence shows that criminal actors within the government quarters are as extremely embedded into the process. So it is the, gener it is the pervasive impunity in the country that is making them to go scot-free and think they can continue to do that while inflicting pain on the people of the Niger Delta. So I think- Okay, Dr. Wali, I'm sorry. I will have to quote you because I would like to give Robin the opportunity to also have a final word. Um, I have a comment here which says, uh, I have visited some oil concrete sites in the Niger Delta. The devastation is extremely bad. The thing is that as long as there is lack of development in the Niger Delta, there is an increase in unemployment and poverty rate. I do not see oil theft and oil brokering ending soon, which is linked directly to the point yourself and Robin has made. When we are talking about cleaning up, are we cleaning up the activities of the past or the ongoing activities? Or are we going to have an unending cleaning up exercise? If, I mean, we need to have an end to the crimes and then we can have an effective cleanup. Robin, in your last words, uh, 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 we have we have we have heard uh, you know points from from you both. The major issue that I have on Anna is the fact that the people who are engaged in these activities within the communities will need alternative livelihoods. In your own engagement and in your research, what are two main strategies do you that you think government can uptake? to provide alternative livelihood to these people. Just to make very direct, and, and, and yeah. you can have your last, last words to that as we round up the section. Okay. Um, that's a really interesting question. I'm not sure I have all the answers. I love uh, the comment from uh, my uh, colleague at Joe Global Initiative, Kela Chukwu. That's exactly right. The strategies, do you know what? We did see, this seems insurmountable, this problem, and I, I've I'm very conscious that we're coming over as very negative about the whole thing. And I don't think that's that's always helpful. One of the things we did observe in our study, and you can see it in the report, is that one of the security companies had a really progressive way of dealing with this problem. And they did it by persuasion and engagement with the community. And they did it through actually a, a very sort of controversial figure who's also a politician who ran the security company. And I won't go into details about the who and where and what, but he, he did create in Bielsa State a real sense that people should move away from the oil crime and towards other livelihoods. And what actually happened over a period of time was that many people who were oil refiners illegally became oil security professionals. So they helped with the surveillance of the oil crime. So that was one good idea, redeploying people, encouraging people, engaging with them with someone who, someone who they respected, engaging with them was really quite powerful. So it can be done. We, there is a positive answer to some of this. 
Thank you so much, Robin and Dr. Wally. I think and so many interesting ideas have been uh, have been shared from this from this platform. And I think uh, uh, some of the points that we have raised, Robin, you mentioned the 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 uh, Petroleum Industry Act and and the percentage the percentage that government has has decided to allocate to rebuilding the communities and creating opportunities. I doubt if that percentage is enough. I think it's too minute to even address the major challenges that we have on the ground. And Dr. Wale talked a lot about the need to the need to revisit the position and the role of state actors who have been key sustainers of this of this crimes. And of course, we also talked about uh, uh, you know like giving the the, the cellular uh, uh, refinery uh, a chance to see how much of of, of uh, uh, help they could do to cope this this challenges. Uh, so uh, I think, uh, Dr. Wale, we have the last word for one minute. We just have one minute to round up. One minute. What would be your parting word before we close this section? Well, my one minute um, intervention is that uh, we need to sustain advocacy on the issues in the Niger Delta. And like Robbie said earlier, we need to muster every support that we can get from civil society, from international media, and then um, from the uh, um, community peoples who are the direct, um, um, who are bearing the direct brunt of this uh, of this plight, we need to. It has to be a sustained advocacy at local and international level. Absolutely. Absolutely, and I think that advocacy will have to be more time visited in itself. While some will be di directed at uh, the environmental degradation going on, others will have to be directed at creating alternative livelihoods to the people who are who are you know uh, severely affected affected by this by this criminalities and of course advocacy to also hold our leaders accountable will be another angle that we need to look at and i think there's an unending role for civil society in this whole conversation and uh, and i believe that uh yeah some of the points that we have shared here civil society working within the environment within this region we take it on and of course the work that you are doing in enact and 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 um uh, that Robin is also doing, we continue to contribute not only uh, our data that we need to engage, but of course, instructive recommendations that policy actors can use to, to address these challenges. Thank you so much to both of you for, for joining us for this panel. And uh, thank you, colleagues, uh, participants. Thank you for, for participating. And to those who asked questions, thank you so much for sending in your questions and your comment. It has been an educative section for me. And again, my name is Omolara Balupo. I work with West Africa Civil Society Institute. It's goodbye from me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the OC24 podcast. For more talks, have a look at the podcast feed on whichever platform you use. There are loads more to listen to. Video versions of these talks are also available on the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime YouTube channel. If you would like to share these talks around, we ask that you use the hashtag OC24 and let us know what you think. The 24-hour conference on global organised crime is brought to you by the European Consortium of Political Research Standing Group on Organised Crime, the Centre for Information and Research on Organised Crime, the International Association for the Study of Organised Crime, and the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. For more information, head over to oc24.globalinitiative.net. 
This has been the OC24 podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. Thanks for listening. Thank you.